Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Two of the biggest issues in education today are the black-white achievement gap and helping students become successful in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, today's guest has a lot to say about both of these challenges. From 1992 until earlier this year, that's 2022, Dr. Freeman Rabowski served as the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. That's UMBC. During his tenure, UMBC became the nation's number one college in terms of the number of black students it graduates who later earn a PhD in natural sciences or engineering. That's an especially impressive feat when you consider that UMBC's undergraduate enrollment is just 11,000 and that black students make up slightly less than 20% of that population. Freeman, welcome to the report card. Thank you very much, Nat. Delighted to be here. So, Freeman, you're now looking back on 30 years as a college president at UMBC. And I want to talk about UMBC's evolution during that time and your presidency. But just to lay a little bit of the groundwork uh, of your personal journey, I think a lot of people don't understand how people become college presidents. So trace your path to the presidency back in the early 90s. Sure. Uh, I would start by saying that we're all products of our childhood experiences. And I was a participant in the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, as a child and spent a week in jail with the other kids. And that experience taught me to believe in myself. And I was always loving math. I've always gotten goosebumps doing math. And what that experience showed me was that, quite frankly, we can use our work in school to think about the problems of society. And I knew I wanted to be an educator. I was looking forward to teaching math. And I went through the ranks of being a faculty member and an administrator because I was always with a big mouth. I was always talking more than I should. And people would finally say, then you do it. If you don't like it, you do it. And, and I ended up in different administrative roles and enjoyed the, the notion of um, making a difference and became vice provost at UMBC in 1987, and five years later became the president. And it's been an amazing ride. So it has been a ride and a long one. But just to give folks who, who, you know, a lot of people say, well, I know what a college president does, but they don't really know what the job is. Can you just give us the thumbnail? I mean, what are the things that you influence as a college president? And how do you, you know, express your leadership and influence over sure. the world? Sure. And, and as the president emeritus of UMBC, I'm always starting by saying when people get a chance to look at the amazing biography of the new president of UMBC, Dr. Valerie Ashby, who had been the dean at Duke and is a polymer chemist in there now. I always like to give her that respect. But let me just say that the several things I think about presidents help set the tone for the institution. They are people who should be moral leaders, who emphasize the importance of values, what's right and wrong, of seeking the truth, who respect the role of different groups on the campus, the role of the faculty with the curriculum and the academic program, the, the role of students to expect excellent teaching and involvement in research and the role of staff in supporting all those efforts. And then finally, um, 
strong relationships, building strong relationships with external groups from the alumni to donors or legislators or the governor. So the president of a university is someone who represents the institution, both off campus, but in thinking about those values that are most important at an institution. I'm privileged to work with new presidents in the Harvard program every year. And I'm always saying that the most important lesson for not just a president, but any leader is to be authentic and honest. That the worst thing a leader can do is lie because it always comes out. But when people see that the leader is doing his or her best and telling the truth and supporting others and believing in the mission, people will tend to be supportive and to give that person help. So when you look at sort of news coverage of uh, UMBC over the time, they'll, they'll often talk about, well, it's a commuter school. Man, man, they always call it a commuter school. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it is a University of Maryland system. It's a large university, but midsize, and it has like a particular sensibility, it seems to me. More so than most universities, I've got this sense, and, and I live not too far from Baltimore and D.C., so you get a, a reflection of this. Yeah. But can you share with folks, what is that sensibility? I'll tell you from, from my perspective, it seems like a serious university, takes academics seriously. The commuter thing may be just less of a reputation of a young party school kind of atmosphere or a college uh, or a football college or something like that. But how would you characterize just sort of the, the reputation, the, the zeitgeist at UMBC? Sure. First of all, we are residential. Let me say that again. We are residential. There you In many years, we may have been commuting, but for years, about half of the undergraduates live on campus and many more move to the area and live in apartments around it. But it's, it's very residential. And I'm always making the point with great campus life, with 100 plus student organizations, where chess is a big deal and Model UN is a big deal. Um, and amazingly, it is known as a place where it's really cool to be a high academic achiever. It's very important to say that, that it is, you know, we think in America, when you talk about policies, people tend to think of independent or private institutions as serious, academically serious. You know, when you think about Carnegie Mellon, you think about brain power. When we think about publics, people tend to think sports. And while we are respectable in sports, what we are known for is brain power. And that's from people who are in the Baja races in engineering um, to a number of areas where we've had national championships. We've been the national cybersecurity champions. We've gone to the Kennedy Center a number of times for winning this American College Theater Festival. We do the kind of theater that either upsets you or depresses you. We do Beckett. You know, my students love Beckett, you know, who, who often wrote in French, for example. We have students from 100 countries. Uh, and what's really amazing is 60% of all of our undergrads have at least one parent from another country. And there's something about that international flavor that makes it such a serious campus. People are hungry for knowledge and very proud to be learning and thinking and asking good questions all the time. How much do you think UMBC is shaped by, you know, it's Baltimore, 
uh, roots, and also just sort of the Delmarva area. That's you know Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. That sort of this this sort of regional shaping. You know, a lot of times you think about big schools, big public universities, are sort of islands unto themselves. Right. I just how much it's locally shaped. Well, it's shaped by the corridor. We are next to Baltimore and D.C. D.C. is very international. The corridor is very international. And people don't realize it, but Maryland is one of the best educated states in the union. It's always in the top two or three. It's one of the richest, by some measures, the, the richest. Now, we take great pride in taking students from all types of backgrounds, from a lot of economic diversity, a lot of professors, kids, a lot of students who are from military families. We are one of the biggest partners to the National Security Agency. But we also take great pride in being an institution that um, speaks about the need to teach people how to work with people different from themselves. And this is what people don't, people who are not from our area may not know this. You've got one of the largest concentrations of scientists in the world in that corridor. So we have big connections, major connections with NIH the National Science Foundation, NASA, and those places, but also it is a cultural epicenter of the country when you think about the Washington area and about what we have in Baltimore. So, no, it is of the world. That's the part that's amazing. When you walk on that campus, Nat, it feels like you're at the Plaza of Nations in New York. I mean, you just see if you see people speaking, I, I started learning French several years ago. Je parle français avec mes étudiants tous les jours because I needed to show my appreciation of Americans, the need for Americans to know other cultures, other languages. And it makes a difference. But let me just give you one more statistic as a proud president emeritus. We were, were in 2021, we were the mock trial champions for the country. We beat that wonderful institution, Yale. That's unheard of. For a public university, UMBC, to be number one in the nation in mock trial. And that's with students coming out of the humanities and social sciences. And, and the fact that we continue to have these Rhodes Scholars out of UMBC and from quantitative economics to nuclear engineering. So it is an unusual young university, not even 60 years old. So I'm interested in exactly the distinction that you're drawing here. Yes. A lot of people, when they think of University of Maryland, they're going to think of College Park, which is sort of the flagship. And a lot of times when people are going to think about these non-flagship state universities, they're going to think, well, it's a public institution. They think sort of, well, it's transactional. People go there and they, they get a, sort of a, a regular degree and then they go on to regular jobs. That's sort of, you know, it, it's a poor attitude. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm just saying that's right. the way it is. And it's especially true, now, excuse me, among older people, no offense to you, but it's especially true among older people who went to college 30, 40, 50 years ago. And first of all, College Park is an amazing university with a fabulous president. University of System of Maryland, let me just say this, has a set of fine institutions of all types, from the professional schools in Maryland to the HBCUs to the comprehensives. So it's a first-rate system that attracts excellent students, both within the state and from all over the world. And, and I, I just have to give credit for that. I can say that now that I'm no longer a part of that system in that way. But I get your question. I get your question. There are many people who have that traditional point of view and I would say 35, 40 years ago, that might have been OK. But I suppose my question is, how do you how did you cultivate 
that particular identity among yes. students is widely shared where academic excellence is is clearly to be pursued, not just kind of pursued in a general sense, but it seems like there's a premium on that. And then part of the identity of the university. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's a great question that it really is. And I want to answer it in a way that's not defensive. That's the other, because <laughs> it'd be a, it'd be easy to be super defensive. Now, I would say this, and I take the offense, quite frankly, in saying really was the quality of the faculty working with other leaders on the campus who said, how can we be different? How can we set ourselves apart? And we did it in symbolic ways with some of these intellectual games. I mean, you go into the, the student commons and you'll find tables with chess boards all around. We've been that national chess champion and always in the top 10 in the country. I mean, it's cool. When you see a chess player on our campus, you bow in reverence because we've got a lot of them who are grandmasters. To become a grandmaster, you have to literally compete successfully in Europe, okay? The fact that we're in a corridor that has all these people, people who are from the diplomacy community, from the intelligence community, from the military community, means we're more serious. We know that. You, you just know that. People often come to us because they want to protect our country, for example, or they come to us because they are from a middle-class family and they want to become the best in the arts and humanities. And they want to go to the Kennedy Center and they understand the importance of serious theater as an idea. But 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 even more important, I think there's a kind of celebration when people do extremely well and we we celebrate our product. So, for example, let me ask you this. What which vaccination did you take? Which 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 one was it? Moderna all the way through. Yeah. Well, the woman who created that vaccine, who led the team with Dr. Bonnie Graham at NIH, is a UMBC graduate, 17-year-old young woman who came to us from North Carolina to be in the Meyerhoff program, which produces the largest percentage of, of numbers of, of African-Americans who become PhDs in science and MD PhDs in the country, number one in the country. But what's interesting is that she uh, went back to Chapel Hill, completed the PhD, then went to NIH. And let the, after the postdoc, led this team and literally created the vaccine. She is the first black woman in the world to create a vaccine. That should give every American, every person, not just women, goosebumps. Because when girls of any race look at her as a 35-year-old woman now, now in the faculty at Harvard, they can say, wow, maybe I can do this too. Now, that's that's the story we can tell. But the, the speaker of the house of our state is our graduate in psych, from psychology. The head of APL, APL is the Applied Physics Lab at Hopkins, major part of the Hopkins enterprise, is a Ph.D. in computer science from UMBC. The vice president of economic development at Hopkins, the president of Clemson, is first generation. Wonderful man, Jim Clemens graduate, three degrees from UMBC in computer science, you know, and I can go on and on about our graduates who are now in the faculties of Harvard and Columbia and Duke, uh, you know, young man who created the pacemaker for the brain to address schizophrenia, another Meyerhoff, amazingly now just going into the National Academy of, of Medicine and becoming a Howard Hughes investigator. It, it's a big deal. These are the highest levels of achievement, but but I would also say when we look at the set of, of lawyers and policy people and others in the D.C. area, you will find large numbers 
of UMBC graduates, psychologists, all the way over to the artistic community. So we say, look at our products. And now what has that done now? This is the point. The proof is not only in the product, but it's in whether people believe in that product. We are bursting at the seams with students, very high achieving students of all races. And, and so we become America's, I think, most impressive example of inclusive excellence. And that means looking at economic background, racial and ethnic, people of different genders, LGBTQ, all these different diverse groups. What they have in common would be two things. One, a serious purpose, being about a very serious purpose, right? To, to seek the truth, to become leaders, to change the world. We talk about those things a lot. I mean, it's, it's exciting to be in discussions on the campus. And number two, an interest in understanding people different from themselves. You, you walk on that campus, you don't want to be there if you don't want to be in the world, of the world, not just of this country, but of the world. That's why I say anybody who walks on there will see students of all backgrounds walking around. And this is what you see that's a sensitive point to make, but I want to make it to be controversial. And you see people from different backgrounds interacting meaningfully. It's OK for people from a certain group to be with each other sometimes. But what we have to do in our country is to teach human beings how to interact with people different from themselves. And you come there, you'll see all these interactions among people from different religions, different backgrounds, different countries, and they are having meaningful conversation, both in the classroom and out of the conversation. That's the thing that you pick up. From the president's perch, it seems like, well, maybe sort of distant from those ground level interactions that you're talking about. We we want to focus on having people different from each other interact because that's sort of part of the health of the body politic. How from the president's perch do you have influence on that sort of ground level interaction at UNB? Sure. I appreciate that. No, I, I have a strong belief in walking around and getting in the middle of conversations all the time. And, and I'm hearing the same thing about Valerie Shields Ashby, that she's getting to know students. One of the when the search committee looked for the new president, they wanted somebody who would appreciate getting to know the people. It's one thing to be at the policy level. It's another thing to get involved, to get engaged. And for me, let me just say, when I talk about people different from yourselves, it's been incredible over the years for me as a 40-some, 50-some, 60-something-year-old, and now 72, all that period to be in the middle of people who are 19 and 21 and to sit and have conversations about everything. Let me say that again, about everything. And, you know, the big joke is, it's hard to make my face turn red now because I've heard everything of the human condition and they've, they've made me laugh sometimes because they've made me uncomfortable because my generation didn't talk about certain things. Well, this generation talks about everything and it's wonderful. There's a level of honesty that's there that, that we who are over 50 can, can learn from, quite frankly. And that's a part of the excitement of higher education uh, what the potential can be, and it's certainly of uh, the, the the kind of part of the DNA of UMBC. Very important. Freeman, so I, I study education policy, so you know there's going to be some policy angles on here. One of my biggest concerns about higher education institutions is the four and six year completion rates at universities. I mean, pretty discouraging numbers when you look nationwide. Right. 
I don't have the stats right in front of me, but at UMBC, you all have made some pretty dramatic strides. Oh, yeah. I saw some saying that you moved from 30% to 70% completion rates. My question is, how did you at UMBC and and how, just more broadly from this policy perspective, how do we get expensive higher education institutions to make sure that the people that come in at the beginning leave with a degree? Yeah, it's such an important question, Nat, since we know that even the formal, the, the official numbers would say 60% of people start uh, don't graduate within the six years for four-year institutions. You know, and I think it's important to look at community colleges too and what they do in the four years. I mean, two beyond the two that that are normally required for full time. But here, here's what I would say. Um, we talk about this in our last book, The Empowered University. I'm shameless for bringing up that book, The Empowered University, but it talks about shared leadership and about the fact that it's not about me, one person. It's about all of us. It's about building community. I say that in the TED Talk. It's all about how you build community. So you're moving in the same direction and agreeing on the same goals that are really important. And it's we say student-centric. We hear that term all the time. But the question is, are people truly being student-centric? We have gone from 30-some percent when I first became president up to 70 percent plus now. And let me just add on another 15 percent who transfer. But we see that they graduate. They sometimes transfer because they can't get to certain programs on our campus or they want another culture. But we can account for up to 85 percent. So it's, it's and then a few others who are still involved. So the key, though, would be looking at ways of, of innovating, of changing the way we do business. So for us, if you look in the STEM areas, we really focused on um, innovation through course redesign, very specifically, particular courses in chemistry and other areas. But we also did it in the humanities, digital humanities. Uh, so from the arts and humanities, faculty have opportunities to compete for grants to, uh, I think, $25,000 to redo a course, to have time to redo a course and to do more work that crosses disciplines and looks at ways of solving problems. And so more engagement of students, more collaboration among the students, more instruction that focuses on group work, for example, more emphasis on analytics and looking at who's doing well in what courses and what sections. So it's getting to a level of granularity and not just for staff members and administrators, but faculty who are looking to see how are most of the students doing in our first year course in, in the calculus sequence or in chemistry or, or in psychology. So it's that emphasis on success of students, academic success of students, but also on pulling them in so they, they take ownership of their own education. You know, I often would say to freshmen, look at the student to your left, look at the student to your right. We say in this country, Nat, one of you will not graduate. They, we've been doing that since we were in college. You know, we say, look to your left, look to your right. Our goal is to make sure all three of you graduate. Because if we don't, and if we don't, we fail. And if you don't say that, when you say one of them is not going to make it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People just accept the idea that it's okay, about 60% graduate. But as you say, that means 40 plus percent are not. And what the new book we're working on is called The Resilient University. And it's saying, yeah, we say, that's 60%. But let's think about two things. Number one, 40% of students in higher education start in community colleges, and there's their challenges there. Number two, it's not that the mean is actually 60%. The fact is, the richer the campus, the higher the percent of people graduating because you've got well-prepared students 
who got the support they need, but a large percentage of institutions in our country, particularly our public institutions, have graduation rates that are well below 50%, and in many cases, below 40%. So it is the question we should all be asking, but we should be looking at best practices in general, and then best practices in disciplines where students tend not to do well. And that's in the STEM areas. You know, I chaired the National Academy's committee on this underrepresentation point, Two-thirds of Americans who start with a major in the natural sciences and engineering will leave it within the first year or two. And the main reason they leave is academic, not doing well academically. And, and, and that's leaving the major, not the university. They're that's just leaving the major, yeah. That's, you know, my big joke is in any group, I say, how many of you started off in pre-med or engineering and became great lawyers? Some people laugh. Some people get upset. But it's true. It's true. It really is for a lot of reasons. Um uh, and the fact is, we accept that idea. And the point of your question, I know, is how do we get all of us in higher education to not accept that idea and to believe we can do a much better job? And a part of it, there's no doubt, is on pre-college education, pre-K through 12, of, of helping universities to work with school systems to prepare teachers, to give teacher support, and to work with families. So it's a complicated issue. But I'm saying even among students who've had a, a solid high school education, the majority change their majors in STEM, even among those students. Let me follow up on that. Most of my focus in my work is on K-12, not on higher ed. And, you know, I often ask, well, I'll be honest, I ask every higher ed leader that I ever talk to, especially somebody who's has perspective over years, how is the preparation? that, you know, most students get for coming into university really serve them for what they can can expect. Because, uh, you know, you often hear, well, preparation is very important. But my question is, from the consumption side, right, you're bringing in students, you're seeing how they're doing. Do you feel like we're getting better? Do you feel like we're treading water when it comes to the preparation of students ready to succeed at UMBC? So we are very fortunate because we get students who are typically from middle class backgrounds, working class backgrounds, very proud of the fact that a third of our students are first generation college. All right. Now, let me be honest about something here that people don't want to talk about. And many of them do well. Our students who are first generation college do as well as others. But it's because we're getting students who often have a parent from another country and there's that intensity about learning, whether the student is from um, a European country or an African country or from Latin America, there's that intensity, that hunger, which helps them so much. But when you get to students who've been here for generations, we have another challenge. So we work on a lot of K-12 programs in Baltimore City and in the corridor for children who have not had that experience, who've been here for generations. And until two years ago, we were making substantial progress with several schools and a consortium of schools in the Baltimore area, the Lakeland Elementary Consortium, K through pre-K through 12, with big grants involving the Sherman Scholars Program designed to produce first-rate teachers in math and science and, and early childhood teachers. We're very proud of that Sherman Scholars Program. And, and what I would say to you is the key is that we were making all that progress, seeing test scores going up until we got to COVID. 
And the reality, and you've seen this with all the data now, is that children who are not from privilege and advantage went backwards. They really did. We've got so much more work to do because it's impossible for most of those kids to have the effective education online. It just is. We've not become sophisticated enough in the use of technology for those children to have that online. And in general, when we talk about saving the democracy, one of the, the secrets we don't talk enough about is that if you are from privilege, your future is fairly bright. The majority of privileged kids whose parents went to college, which is only a third of Americans, will go on to college and do well. All right. But when you're from that bottom 40 percent of any race, the fact is you don't get the quality of pre-K through 12 education. And that that lack of education has a direct impact on whether or not you're able to first go to college. And even if you go, you too often have to take developmental courses. And many of the students who take developmental courses never graduate. Now, that's the reality. So these things are intertwined. The notion of strengthening pre-K through 12, but giving more support to families to help parents and others understand what they can do, but also to help those parents in skills building too, right? Um, and at the same time, to look at what it's going to take to put more teeth into this process of universities working with K-12. We all say we work with K-12, but I would argue unless we can see the direct impact of our work on the both the academic skills of students and on their sense of self, we are not making the difference we need to make. And we have a lot of work to do, all of us. All right, Freeman, in the middle of our podcast, we do a section called Grade It. Are you game? I'm game. All right. I'm going to throw out a softball to start with. The Baltimore Orioles. Oh, a B plus. Somebody who's winning nationals all the time would get an A, but, I, but I'm very proud of the Orioles. Get that? I'm very proud of the Orioles. <laughs> and for me, a B plus is a really good grade. I do not do great inflation. Tough grader. I, I appreciate it. Multi-billion dollar university endowments. I would say a B because it's great they've been able to raise that money. The question that any institution has to ask is, are we using it for the betterment of society and for and for people from less privileged backgrounds? Because anytime you talk about a multi-billion dollar endowment, you're talking about an affiliation with great wealth, people who are already very privileged. And I'm not knocking that group because some of them are my donors, all right? But at the same time, I'm saying we can all do better. We can all do better. Any institution can do better in using the money it has to help even more people. Uh, students working during college. I give them an A, an A, because people have no idea how hard it is for students to have to come to class and make sure they are working and often taking with family responsibilities. I am so admiring of people who, whether they are 19 or 40, who are doing that. It shows such entrepreneurship and we should be celebrating those students and giving them more support to make sure they can balance the two in the right way. All right. America wide here. This is a big one. The state of free speech on college campuses. I'd give us a C plus. I'd give us a C plus for this reason. Uh, we are better than most people. Critics would say in that we have elements on the campuses. We work very hard at UMBC 
to have that free speech. Are we perfect? No, but we do a hell of a job. We have a saying, we want to teach people how to agree to disagree agreeably with civility. So they can have different points of view and still listen to other people. I'd give UMBC a B plus. Not perfect, but we do a lot there. But overall, I would say it's C plus. All right, here's a chance to grade the graders. What grade would you give university rankings? <laughs> I'd, I'd give it, I'd give it a, a C plus slash B minus. Why? Because anytime we do well, it's like a beauty contest. We want everybody to know how beautiful we are. So when UNBC was most in, in the top 10 for most innovative, top undergrad education, even though it's just what others say about us, we use it. And it does help. It does help. Is the methodology all it should be? Of course not. But no, that's why I say B minus C plus. Yeah, we can always be much better. But it does help us in different ways. Now, the, the richest and the most privileged will always be at the top. And um, we could talk about what that means. I've noticed that as well. I'll tell you what. <laughs> all right. The value of political protests in the United States in 2022. I would give it I would give it a B plus because I do see these protests, nonviolent ones, nonviolent ones, very important, speaking to the values that different groups have and saying to elected officials and the rest, this is important to me, whether it's about women or about other issues that when people stand up and say what they, it's it's at the height of democracy, as long as it's nonviolent and it's the people speaking. And if, and I say B plus, because the question is, will elected officials listen to the people? Are we making sure that our um, citizens, that people have the opportunity to be heard, to vote and to have their vote counted? And are we making sure, sure that the truth reigns, that the truth reigns? That's, these are the challenges we face. So I'm saying, and I'm giving that B plus because I, I want to believe that we should keep hope alive, that we will move more and more towards a re-emphasis on the truth and have the, having the courage to tell the truth. It's very important. All right. Inspirational movies about successfully educating black students. <laughs> My challenge is I rarely watch movies. Uh, I was, I really do. I'm embarrassed to say my students are always saying, didn't you see that? No. Uh, so I will say the 60 minutes piece on the Maha program. It's, it's a documentary. It's only 15 minutes, but it's very inspiring. It also got me into a lot of trouble in that because I got a lot of hate mail. From it because we take the phones away from the Mahoffs in the summertime. And people are writing saying, This is America. You can't take anybody's phone away. But what they didn't know was that it was a decision of students who were finishing a summer program who said, If you want the next group to be more connected, take their phones away. And during the during the week. And so we did what they said, right? And it does work. It makes them more of a community. And that's a documentary, but yeah. And that's about really educating. Uh, students, black students and other students to become successful in science. Yeah. Freeman, just as a, a side, our last, our last episode was with a guy named Doug Lamov. He's a teacher and he wrote an article about K-12 schools and it was called 
take away their cell phones. <laughs> Might find common cause with Doug. Right, the NCAA football juggernaut. I am going to say I am ill-prepared, first of all, because UMBC does not have a football team. Number two, because I am a mega nerd, meaning when I go to basketball games, my students sit by me to tell me what's going on. And I'm very proud to be a mega nerd. I know math. So I just want to see my students succeeding. So I guess my question is the influence that NCAA football has on, on shaping college college culture, campuses, and politics? I would say it's not just football. I don't want to just kick football. I would just say in general, in our society, we need a, a healthier balance at the K-12 level and college level between academics and athletics. There's a very important role for athletics to play. When we won the UVA game in 2018, by 20 points, by the way, it was great. <laughs> We're very proud of UVA because the next year they were the national champions. But it's still, I mean, so there's a very important role for athletics to play. And students need these kinds of outlets and an opportunity to work in teams. So it's a lot of good stuff about athletics. I'm not saying that. But I do think there is an overemphasis on that multi-billion dollar industry. And it leads to uh, a less lessening of the emphasis on academics. And so there is a need for a lot of work not just with NCAA, but in our society when thinking about sports and entertainment. All right, so that wraps up Grade It. Thanks for playing. Let me ask, you've referred to uh, the Meyerhoff Scholars Program a couple of uh, times, and you probably knew I was going to get to it at some point, and now is that time. So briefly, what is the Meyerhoff Scholars Program? First of all, we have these scholars programs on campus designed to celebrate high achievement among groups of different types. So the Center for Women in IT, the Linehan Artist Scholars, the Sunheim Public Affairs Scholars, the Sherman Scholars for Teachers, and the Meyerhoff was the first. So the others are modeled after it, are started by wonderful gentleman, Bob Meyerhoff, who's now 98 and still involved in the program, still asking good questions. And, and we worked with our campus and faculty to create a vision, a bold and hairy vision, to use Jim Collins' words, that would be to bring together high achieving, started with blacks, now we have minorities, and we have people of not just of color and women, but also uh, whites with an interest in underrepresentation, because we need white faculty who, who get comfort levels in dealing with students of all types. But the goal is to produce PhDs in STEM or MD PhDs. And we've become the leading producer for Blacks in that group. We've got Hispanics in the program now, Asians and whites, uh, and a few Native Americans. But the key is the emphasis, and it's the same thing I say in my TED Talk. It's about having the highest expectations for those students, that they will not only do well in undergrad, but go on, um, but also high expectations of us to do a better job in working with students. Number two, to build community among the students. Number three, this is one we use from science to the arts, but it takes researchers to produce researchers. If you're in policy, you want to get into policy, you need to be around people in policy. They pull you into the work and then rigorous evaluation. That's It's a 30 plus year program that has become one of the models. In fact, Howard Hughes uses the Meyerhoff program. The Howard Hughes Medical Institute uses uh, um, Meyerhoff uh, in replicating programs, which we've done at Chapel Hill and Penn State with HHMI money. They're doing, getting ready to do some more replications. And Zan Zuckerberg, Chan Zuckerberg, 
actually is, is replicating Mahoff at Berkeley and San Diego with the same notion of producing first-rate scientists of color and others interested in those issues. So you mentioned a lot of uh, these scholar programs that have sort of spun off, but to focus a little longer on Meyerhoff in particular, it seems like it has a pretty laser focus on STEM, yes, graduate programs, graduate graduates among uh, African-American students and other minority students. Yep. And that's that's great. But what I want to understand is what are the building blocks that makes that happen? So what are the key parts that make Meyer have so successful? Very good. So it's, it's focused on, as you said, African-Americans and other minorities and whites, though. I don't want to say, I mean, some of my best students who go on to become faculty and help to build the pipeline of others have been white. Uh, but uh, the, the building blocks are going to be looking at level of academic achievement. You can't take someone who is at the remedial or developmental level in math and expect in four or five years that person is ready for a PhD to get a PhD in math or engineering. You got to have a certain level of education. So we've looked at what that means. Usually it means exposure in calculus, uh, ABBC calculus. But there have been students from uh, less well-resourced schools with pre-cal backgrounds, and we've been able to build them up from rural areas to urban areas. So we do take that group also when they've got, and, and, and one of the criteria that, that is not as tangible, but I think is so important is fire in the belly, fire in the belly. Somebody may not be quite as well prepared, but they're determined to make it. They've got that grit. That's the word we use. The name of our dog on campus is true grit, right? So, so it's that. And then it's having faculty with an interest in working with them. One of the issues on, in higher education is that usually when you talk about minorities, you've got some minority staff on the side who are wonderful, but you don't have the faculty involvement. Faculty involvement is critical. And that's not just very nice, untenured, young faculty. It's some of the senior faculty who are very involved. And not just women, it's also white men. Because our, our faculties on most of our campuses in STEM are still mainly white, heavily men at the upper level, and we need them involved. The, the book that my colleagues and I wrote before this one was called Holding Fast to Dreams. And we've got Mike Summers, a white guy on the front with a black kid and a Korean student looking at the HIV virus, three-dimensional structure. And people said, why would you put a white man on a book that's talking about producing black scientists? I said, because the power in science in our country is still heavily in the hands of white men. That's not a disparaging comment. That's just the truth. But there are a lot of those guys who want to be involved in helping more women and people of color succeed. Mike Summers, who's an HHMI investigator, member of the National Academy, is one of those people who actually produces probably more blacks in biochemistry than anybody in the country. So we want to show those examples. And so the Meyerhoff is about that faculty involvement, building community, as I said, that's a building block, and really having them working together, heavy evaluation, feedback from them regularly, and then inspiring them with a lot of mentors who can say, this is what you can do. You talked about the community in this, and in much of the things that I've read about Meyerhoff, there seems to be a, a slightly different tack. When you talk about community, uh, many of these other high-performing programs may be fueled a little bit more by competition or by um, excellence, you know, not at the expense of the community necessarily, but to drive your own individual performance. You have some requirements for the Meyerhoff scholars, and you have some sort of community building aspect to that. How important are those, and, and what are they? It's critical. I mean, the, the fact is that if we go with the old-fashioned view that STEM has to be cutthroat, 
that I won't tell you what I know because you may not tell me what you know and everything is graded on a curve, then we don't support each other. But when you look at very impressive scientific research or research in the humanities and social sciences, scholars work together. It's not just a one person in a cubicle. You have teams of people working on these problems and these issues, whatever they are. And so we have to teach students how to do that. That doesn't mean you won't have individual excellence. You know, I mentioned Dr. Kismikia Corbett, who's at, at the now, Dr. Kafri Zarasi at Duke. These are people who are at the top of their games in their 30s, um, and yet they know how to work in groups and how to contribute in groups. And it's teaching people how to do just that. Let me give you one example in that. Um, many students from high school are not accustomed to working in groups because they've been told that if you work with somebody else, you're cheating. And so when they think about a group, they think about some a group that's going to pull them back. Well, one of the guiding principles in effective group work is you don't come to the group to study together until you've done your own homework, that you know what you know and what you don't know, that the better you are, the more clearly you can explain a concept. I would argue that anyone who is going to be the best, not only can write a little test, but can explain it with clarity. One of our challenges in American society is that those people in STEM, all of us in STEM are often saying to people, well, I can't talk about it because you wouldn't understand it. Well, when we say that, that just makes people think, well, they're those smart people over there, and that has nothing to do with me. And so one of the things we are working to do is to help not just my house, but students at UMBC to explain concepts with clarity. So that you may not get into the weeds on it, but you can give the overview. You can tell why it's important. You can define certain terms. And as a result of the conversation, you become more equipped to help people who may not understand it. That's a part of the collaborative movement that we're seeing across education these days. I appreciate many of the aspects of the Meyerhoff program. But we've talked a little bit about how prepared students come in, and and you said it as plain as day. Look, if students aren't prepared when they enter, we can't do miracles. So when we talk about closing achievement gaps, particularly, and not just achievement gaps, but educational attainment gaps, particularly in the context of what's happened during the pandemic with the widening of the achievement gaps that we've been working hard to close. How does a a leader of an institution that's devoted to bringing everyone into post-secondary success face the problem that there's some students that just don't come out of high school ready? How do we look at that challenge and where should we look to ameliorate it? Right. So I I would say several things. Uh, It's important to look at the mission of every institution and to see who are the students that institution is trying to serve, uh, and what approach are they using in serving those students? It would be, it would be, almost, it would be immoral to admit someone into engineering when the person doesn't even know algebra, because it's not going to happen in a year or two. It takes a long and, and math and STEM. I would say be like reading. You learn different levels as you move along. You develop skills. You develop a sophistication of thinking that's very important. And what we need to do and what we work on, at at one point, when I first moved to UMBC, we were taking in a lot of students who didn't have the preparation. And we felt good about admitting them, but they were not succeeding. All right. Um, We finally decided, let's do two things. Let's decide 
what level of education is required for the student to have a reasonable chance of, 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 of succeeding in different disciplines. Because what may be expected in biochemistry may be different from what's expected in another discipline. That's number one. Number two, somebody said, well, but we are a public university and we're here in the Baltimore, Washington corridor. What responsibility do we have to people who are not prepared? And that's where we said, let's put a lot of money and effort and grant writing and external funding and fundraising into pre-K through 12. So we can produce more students who will be prepared to come here. And that's a policy issue. Do we put all the money into remediation when we're seeing right now that it's not working in so many settings from two to four year institutions? Or do we look at how we rethink some of that money to do much more with not only in early childhood, but at the middle school level, for example, in building the algebra and reading skills. I'm a strong believer that when people say whether you need to succeed in STEM, the first thing I say, reading and thinking. Because you see, physics and chemistry and engineering problems are expressed in words. So reading skills are more important than ever. The American child will often say, give me the equation, 5x plus 5 equals 25. Don't give me a word problem because they don't read well. But nobody expresses problems in numbers or equations. You have to be able to talk through the problem. And then, and so the idea of reading skills are critical. So much of our emphasis in our Carter is on millions and millions of dollars of pre-college programs from the Upward Bound program we have to working with the consortium of schools um, to the Choice program, which is working with first generation, first time offenders. We've got 500 children that we work with, mainly boys, boys of color, heavily black, some girls, some whites, but children who have gotten into trouble and we've had a program as long as Myhoff called the Choice Program that people don't know enough about, which focuses on helping those children to not go back into the judicial, the uh, juvenile justice system, but most important to building their academic skills, getting them into school every day, preparing them. Now, will they come to UMBC? Probably not. But can we get them either to a community college? in some cases, into upward bound. So some have come to UMBC and or into a job. That's all a part of the larger scheme. But it would be naive for people to think, oh, you should be taking everybody into UMBC to become engineers. Doesn't work like that. Anybody who knows education and who knows STEM education really knows you've got to have a certain background. So you better spend more time well before they get there if they're going to have a chance of making it in computer science. So girls with code, for example, the Center for Women in IT, summer programs, weekend activities, all those things are a part of it. And final point is this, Nat. Um, these conversations require years of deep discussions so that we can understand how much more can be done. Right now, we are working on ways of rebuilding skills in the schools where we're working. And we did a lot of that last year uh, through the Sherman Scholars Program because, and it means also working very closely with the educators in the schools. One of the, if you ask me about relations between universities and schools, I'd say usually it's about a C because we universities want to usually tell the K through 12 people what to do. We don't know children. 
Most of us don't. You know, I've spent a lot of time in schools. My first two books were on raising children, black children in math and science, boys and girls. But the, the fact is that it's the teachers who know the children and that behavior. We may have some concepts that can be helpful, but it needs to be a partnership. This is where I, I would argue we can do a better job of, of not talking condescendingly to K-12 people. Because if you've not been in that classroom and worked with 30 children or 40 children at a time, you really don't understand the complexity of the problems. Long answer, but you can tell it's something I care about. Freeman, I, I want to get a little bit of your wisdom gathered over 30 years as a college president. I'm not asking you to name names in this question, but I am asking about the leadership of universities. I want to ask on two levels. The first thing I just want to talk about is cost. In-state tuition at UMBC is about 10 grand a year. Now, if you've heard everything in the media that gets portrayed about college costs, that sounds like a pretty reasonable tuition price. How have you kept that cost down? And why do you think college costs have risen so dramatically across the nation in other places? Right, right. You know, I, I would say several things. Um, I want to give a shout out, as my students would say, to community colleges there. Uh, if you're of a certain age, you don't really appreciate the strong role, important role of community colleges in American higher education. But more than 40 percent of all students who start in college start in community colleges. And I was privileged to chair the, the Aspen uh, Prize a year ago and looking at what institutions do. And they do some great work and they're much less expensive. I start there. OK, number two, uh, I'm working now with ACE and we're looking at different kinds of institutions and the role of leaders. And a part of, of what we need to do is to help the public understand what we're doing and why we do what we do. You know, you have media people saying higher education is not as important as it was. But my question is always, show me a family that's had success in educating some of its children who doesn't want others to go. You see, the problem is we don't even have 40% overall of Americans who had success in American higher education. So they don't really know how important it is. Number two, um, there are different circumstances among publics and among independent and privates. Some I'm always saying, trying to be as statesmanlike as possible, that there are a number of private institutions that give a heavy discount. So you don't just look at the overall that, that price at the top. You want to see what is it the family is going to have to pay. All right. And that's important to look at. But there is a mindset in our country that private is better. That is a strong, I mean, there's a strong sentiment. And in particularly in certain parts of the country, if you look from D.C. to New England, you, you, you see it, for example, the Midwest is better, much better, quite frankly, and the West, Berkeley. You know, it's very wonderful. Uh, University of Washington. But in certain parts of the country, more than others, people think necessarily. And and there's some states where a student will say to me, well, I would have gone there, but I didn't have the money. So I settled for this public university. There's a problem with that. There's a real problem with that. Because universities 
can be effective for certain students, different groups in different ways. People even want to say, well, if you get to a rich private place, then you've got better contacts. Well, that's true for a few people. But I know a lot of people who've gone to very rich institutions who are looking for a job. So it depends on your major and the people you got to know at that institution. I mean, that's just not true. And most important, and I say it because there are a lot of middle class families who may be making together $100,000 who are prepared to talk about spending $70,000 per year and then having two children in institutions that cost that much for tuition fees, room and board. The question is, does that make sense when thinking about how long they're going to be in debt? You know, I think, I mean, we have wonderful private and public universities in our country, and we need to be able to look at them and look at the products to, to determine where can my son or daughter or can I have the best experience and be productive and most important, beyond jobs, just learn to think critically. So with all that said, one more point I would make, um, I don't think we understand just how transformative the college education is for people. You know, when we say, oh, it's getting so expensive and we should all continue to look at costs. I'm not saying that, you know, but but let me put it another way. I got faculty who may be making um, $100,000 in a technical area uh, for the year, which is a good salary. But then I just talked with one of my students who's going to a fabulous place in California, and he's asking me, he's, he's 21 years old, and he's saying, um, is $160,000 plus bonus too little? So now think about it. This is a young man, your bachelor's degree, going out to one of the big places. Brilliant. Yeah. He's been, and he's going to start off on 160 plus benefits. Wait a minute. And his faculty are making between 80 and 110. Wait a minute. With PhDs. You know, we never question how much athletes make when they're getting the $30 million deals. We just accept that's just fine. Okay. But when it comes to education and what we pay faculty or whatever, all of a sudden, oh, we, it's just too expensive. You know, and yet Americans, we go to the most expensive of entertainment, most expensive of athletics. And what I'm saying, the larger point is this. I think it's more about values. I think it's about values. I, as a parent, should want my child to get the best education, uh, whether it's public or private. And I need to think about how I want America to help me with that education. Yeah, to balance it. But when you look at, I understand for people from low-income backgrounds, they need a lot of help. And middle-class people do. But there's something about Everybody's saying, oh, how expensive our education is. Well, the, the places where it's really most expensive will be very prestigious, academically and socially prestigious institutions. And they can afford to be that because here's the part nobody says, because people at a certain level can afford them. That's nobody wants to say that, that a lot of places people can afford because you got a lot of rich people in America. You really do. But for lower income people and middle class and working class people, we do need to keep balancing what people can afford with how much we're charging, with how much support they can get from the federal government to help. And when people say, why are they getting that handout? I was delighted with what Mr. Biden, President Biden did to help people. Of course, because it helps. The, it's the public good. It's not just for that family when you help them out, because then they can get a better job and pay more taxes 
and help the system. If you don't do that and people don't get the education, then what do they do? They get into trouble. They go to prison. We ought to be thinking about how much it costs to keep somebody in prison every year. Nobody talks about that, that we got more people in prison than ever before. And how much it costs. Nobody says, oh, prison, it costs of prison to the society is really expensive. We don't get that, you know, but on the other end. And so that, that's a long story, uh, but it's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Well, I got one more question for you from the perspective of a university president who's had such a long tenure. I'm sure as a university president, there's lots of sort of temptations of things to chase. I want to chase this initiative. I'm going to work on our football program. I'm going to work on access. There's good things and bad things. But I imagine that there are some avenues that a lot of presidents will go down that you might say, that is not good for universities. That is a temptation to be resisted. What are the temptations that you think university leaders and presidents need to resist? First of all, I think leaders need to understand it's not just about them. I keep saying that, but it's about that group on campus working as a leadership team. That's faculty and staff and the administration to say, this is important to us. And they develop that mission. You know, that's why I really like the ACE approach of helping leaders think about how to work with their campuses. And also I should mention the Innovation Alliance. It does a great job. We are very proud to be a part of that Innovation Alliance because it focuses on what's important. How do we think out of the box? How do we learn from other people about how to get things done more effectively, including student success? Both of those groups are working on that. But this is what I would say. The question we have to ask Every time there's another opportunity is how do we have a process in place that makes sure we are asking the right questions, such as how does this fit with our mission, such as, yeah, it looks like we're going to get five million dollars for the initiative, but how much are we going to have to spend? What's going to be the overall cost to the institution? If we do this, what will suffer? Is there something else that's going to suffer and that we're willing to give up? The question people rarely ask is, if we're adding something on, is there something we should stop doing? Because once we start doing things, we tend to keep doing those things, whether they're effective or not. Do we have the right evaluative component to our process to make sure that we are comparing the benefits of this one new situation or initiative to some other things? One of the challenges that you get on campuses is a lot of colleagues will say, you're bringing in this new person, this new initiative, or this new group, and you're paying them much more than you've been paying us. And we've been here working for the university for a long time. So, I mean, it's the balancing of those two. Doesn't mean you don't want to do new things, but need to make sure. We have to make sure we are looking at the important questions to give it the kind of thought, the depth of thinking about the future and how it fits. I'll, I'll just give you, I'll give you one example from UMBC. Uh, one of the most public times for our campus was literally not being a national chess champion or winning cybersecurity nationally. It was when we won that basketball game, as you might imagine. And all of a sudden, I got a lot of pressure. We were getting a lot of pressure. Okay, this tells you, you need to become big sports. This is showing you what happens when you're really good and you need to become big sports. And it would have been millions and millions of additional dollars. And we had the hard conversation on campus. 
Is this something we want to try to do? We have not been trying to be big sports, right? Uh, and we decided for our campus, given our level of resources, given our mission, we wanted to be respectable as a mid-sized institution, okay? But that, no, we were not going to be driven by this great success for the moment. And that was a lot of, of students and faculty and staff who said no, because to get to the next level, you got to invest a lot of money. And that was not who we are. Other institutions have bigger endowments or they have more money from the state or whatever. And we, we're very fortunate in Maryland in that state elected officials from governor to the legislature, they really believe in higher education and public higher education. So we are well, I've had uh, over that time and I was there the last 20 some years, a billion dollars in construction. So the place is really 600 acres. It's wonderful. But we had to make decisions about people coming to us saying, we want to bring this to your campus. And in each case, it was very attractive. But the question is, how does it fit with the mission? And number one, how does it ensure that we continue to focus on the student success, undergrad and grad, and on the way we are building research? We became um, uh, amazingly research one over this last year, but we did it in the light of the genius of the Ann to keep focusing on first rate undergrad and grad education and teaching and building the research at the same time. So those were the key. And finally, working with the community in different ways. How hard is that for a university president and leadership? Because you've just given this example, the big win in the March Madness tournament and just a great run celebrated. And there's a window of opportunity to chase something new, maybe something off. I would think that those temptations come in small and, and perhaps not as as large uh, uh, an opportunity or with as much fanfare as that NCAA tournament run. But my question is, how hard is it in the modern university to stay focused on that narrow, clear mission? And how how problematic is it when universities may try to be all things to to, to all people? All people. It you know, then it, it is hard. And it does take the reason that I keep saying it's not about me. It's more effective to have a group of leaders, faculty leaders, the staff and the students working with you. When you can come together and build consensus, you can say, this is who we are. I'll give you this one other example. Uh, everybody keeps talking about us in science and engineering. And it's great because we do better. I don't know a campus that does better in science and engineering than we do to produce the head of the Hopkins APL, for example. Right. Or faculty who students who are now faculty at Harvard and Stanford. But. Uh, people, the media will talk about science and tech. They rarely talk about arts, humanities, and social sciences, you know, and yet we decided more than a decade ago to invest even more money. We had some great faculty. We needed much better resources. We needed to build a major arts and humanities facility and to get more support for a number of the initiatives that would support those faculty. Well, it was through doing that over 10 to 12 years that finally Carnegie looked at us and said, um, research one. We are research one, you know, one of the few in the country and that and that level. It's a big deal, huge deal for a mid-sized place. But it was because of the balancing of science and engineering, art, humanities and social science. But it was also not so we could get to another category so much, but because we wanted our students to be broad in their education, not to be techies. That is not who we are. We want people who enjoy literature or learning another language, for example or appreciating the arts, things that sound trite, but that are more important now. The arts and humanities are more important now 
than ever as you think about preparing people to help with the democracy. But it took people kept saying, why are you doing this? Why are you talking about even at the legislature when we were talking about a, a, a $170 million arts and humanities building? And they said, why would a science and tech place need a facility like this? And you produce the doctors. And I said, have you ever had a doctor who had no bedside manner? And they all laughed. I said, it's because they didn't take the humanities seriously. They just loved chemistry. You know, they didn't think about the human element. You are a, a problem for them. You're not that human being. It is the humanities that will teach us more about being humanistic in our approach, in caring about people. It's not from, I love math and it's great, but learning French and French literature and culture takes it to another level in terms of my understanding of, of the human existence, of the human condition. Freeman Rabowski, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your 30 years of service to uh, UMBC and for sharing some of the things you learned in that journey. It is a magical place with a brilliant president. This is what an old president can say. I am so, so honored that Dr. Valerie Shears Ashby is now the leader, first woman leader of the UMBC campus. We are all thrilled. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Thank you, Nat, very much. <laughs> thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Freeman Rabowski. We'll include a link to some of Dr. Rabowski's work in the show notes. You can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review to help other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Matt Malkus.